being able to find like growth loops that are maybe non-traditional, I find that a really good source that a lot of people don't think about. You're listening to Sunny Side Up, a B2B podcast that brings you the juiciest insights from go-to-market leaders and practitioners. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Sunny Side Up. I'm your host, Harry Levitt. Today, I am super excited to talk to Jared Gardner about creating successful marketing teams at high growth companies. And to just do a quick intro about Jared, Jared is the VP of Growth at Human Interest, a fintech company that offers an affordable, full service 401k provider focused on small businesses. Prior to human interest, he held growth and demand gen roles at other high growth software companies, including Qualtrics, Service Titan, and Sprinkler. Jared, I'm really excited to talk to you and welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Good to talk to you again too, Harry. Uh, It's been a little while since we've connected, but I'm looking forward to going in on uh, high growth marketing teams. Of course, me as well. Cool. Well, excited to jump right into it. Um, So just kicking it off, you know, as a career B2B marketer, would love to just tap into your experience and insights a little bit in the industry. Would be curious to hear, you know, what are you most passionate about? What keeps you excited? What gets you out of bed every day and excited to go to work? So I think uh, for me, it's probably being able to leverage technology to make experiences better. Probably the, the biggest thing. And so I think that I've always ended up in demand generation and growth roles, but I really care a lot about marketing technology. That's like what keeps, that's what like I geek out about more so is marketing technology. And so there's just, there's so much, so many options out there right now and so many different suites and platforms and point solutions and so on and so forth that a lot of people are just kind of scratching the surface with the kind of full uptake and utilization of those platforms. And so when you can go from like your software could do this to your software is doing that, I think that's what gets, gets me super excited. And I think that's where so like, you know, every team that I've worked with is kind of struggling on that full utilization of their platforms um, because they're, I think most check, most like companies have the check boxes covered of like, can you do this? Can you do that? Can you do that? And it's figuring out how to use those and actually putting the programs into place so that you are seeing the growth from all of those tools that you've got. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely makes a lot of sense. And I know from working with you firsthand experience, you're definitely the master of making the most out of your technology and your tech stack. But you hit on a couple things that are really interesting to me and that definitely resonate. First is, you know, there's just so many technologies out there nowadays in the MarTech space. I think I saw on LinkedIn, there was a post the other day that just had like the full MarTech landscape and there was thousands of technologies on there. So I want to kind of dive a little bit, a little bit deeper into that in a minute. But the other thing that you touched on that I think really resonates is, you know, picking the technology is kind of the first step and then figuring out how to make the most of it is the next step and putting, you know, yourself and your team in a position, as you mentioned, to say, you know, this technology could do this to this technology is doing this. Yeah, I, I, uh, I'm excited to talk more about that. I think a lot of that, what, what I find, and I'm guilty of this, and I think this is where I've, like, I've changed in the last year or two, is I used to just like, try to get on the cutting edge as quick as possible. And that led to a lot of like underutilized software. And so I think now I have a a little bit more discipline with the teams of trying to say like, 
no, we can't buy that other software until we're done like implementing this software, or you know, we can't <laughs> upgrade to this other package until we're done doing all of the things that are included in in the base package. Right. So that, that like that sort of thinking is, is a little bit different than my where I probably was like three years ago, where I was just like, oh, you have to have the latest and greatest all the time, and then um, you ended up with a lot of like halfway utilized tools. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm sure that's one of the hardest parts about being a leader, especially one that's so passionate about technology, as I'm sure, you know, you're seeing these technologies, you're getting pitched all the time, seeing all these cool new bells and whistles. I'm sure it's a hard balance of deciding, you know, when it's worth it, but when you need to maybe rein it in a little bit more and make the most out of what you have. And on that note, to dive a little bit deeper into that, and to the point that we touched on earlier, you know, with so many marketing technologies in the space nowadays and you having the experience of working with you know small middle enterprise businesses and leading growth teams at all of those types of organizations would be curious to hear your perspective on how you do figure out you know what's the right technology for your team and for your organization at that time that will help you scale yeah i think what i've noticed across the sectors that you are like let's call it like market segments is a better term for that uh that you mentioned across enterprise mid-market and smb is it's not as different as, as one would think so i think and we could talk probably talk about this a little bit later which is i do think Tactics, channels, messaging, content, those things change based on the market segment. I think technology-wise, you're going to have most of the same pieces, regardless of which segment that you're targeting, with maybe the exception of how you let leverage or, or maybe even when you leverage an ABN platform. So, you know, specifically for your guys' product, I think like at the enterprise side, it's probably like one of the first three things that you do, where in the SMB space, it's maybe like, maybe five or six, but it's still on the list. And so I think there's maybe you would focus on things when you're on the SMB side that are going to give you more scale and more reach. Um, and so that's going to be probably more the traditional like channel focused approach. So, you know, can you leverage or like, can you fully maximize paid search? And so, you know, if, if paid search becomes a big enough channel, maybe you're looking at a technology like search Ad 360 to help you get more efficiency out of that channel. And then, you know, you're going to kind of work for, work channel by channel. You know, I think email, you know, obviously any B2B, any B2B organization, you're going to have a marketing automation platform. Does that marketing automation platform really need to change based on the segment that you're serving? I'm, I'm kind of finding it doesn't. Um, you know, I think people would argue like, oh, Marketo's for the enterprise and HubSpot's for, for mid-market or SMBs. Uh, I've used it. I've used HubSpot in the enterprise and I've used Marketo in SMB. And I find that like, it's really not that different. The challenges that you have are, are more or less the same. And so it's really just a matter of like SMB, you're, you're, you're potentially going to have more accounts and more contacts. And so you need to think about pricing structures that way. It's just like, you, you're going to have, you know, maybe your total TAM is instead of on the enterprise side, it might be 10,000 companies that you're going after on the SMB side. It might be like 2 million companies. And so you're going to have a little bit of different needs as far as database size. But I find that across those, it doesn't really change much. You know, what does change more across the market segments is the type of tactics that you're going to do. Like, you know, I find things like webinars just don't work as well um, in SMB. But I do find like, which makes it really fun is like direct response, like request a demo tends to be a whole lot cheaper per lead 
and you can really just say like, you know, here's the thing that we do, like talk to sales today. And those, those like small business owners or, you know, small business employees tend to respond to that where like on the enterprise, people are so inundated with sell, getting sold solutions that they're to the yeah. point of like, yeah, yeah, I'm not talking to sales. Like, sh- like show me the, um, like show me the uh, demo video online or like, let me see some screenshots of this thing. Let me self-educate before I decide if I want to talk to sales. So I think those like the tactics definitely differ a lot by SMB to enterprise. And then the channel is a little bit. You know, I think channels such as like Facebook is, is probably like the one that people point to the most. Like I've seen Facebook work time and time again for small businesses. I've not really seen it work very well for enterprise. I think there's things you can do to, to likely make it work for enterprise through audience, uh, like better audiences using like your ABM audiences in a Facebook world. I think that's like something you get really excited about or so you're getting almost LinkedIn style targeting in a Facebook audience, right. that's something that like might unlock the channel. And, and that maybe that kind of goes back to like the need for an ABM platform is so that you can do that earlier on because that targeting becomes so, so important. So I was kind of rambling a little bit, but did that answer your question? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Not rambling at all. I mean, it's, it's really interesting to hear perspective on that again, just given that you have so much experience working across the three different segments of, you know, enterprise, SMB, mid-market. And, you know, what I find really interesting there that, you know, I think we keep coming back to a little bit is that, you know, the technology, yes, it's important to evaluate what technology is the best fit for your company. But at the same time, it really comes back to just figuring out how to use that technology and make the most of it and figuring out, you know, as you kind of mentioned, you know, what tactics, what channels are going to be most effective for our business and how can we leverage our tech stack to execute those tactics and across those channels? So really interesting to hear your perspective on that. Would be curious to hear, you know, where does CRM in your mind fit into that mix? You know, how important is CRM for what you want to accomplish? And how do you kind of think about that in fitting in with the rest of your MarTech stack? Yeah, I think it's a necessary evil if you have a direct sales motion, you know, so I, yeah. I think like, let's put like product like growth companies who have, you know, famously didn't have a salesperson for the first 20 years or something like an Atlassian or, or something like that. What, you know, I think companies like that can probably get away with using like a CDP as long as they, you know, have the, the concept of like an account object, basically where they're grouping users together in instances and stuff like that. So I think like in pure product like growth, motions, the CRM maybe isn't a necessity, but I feel like it's like, I can't imagine a direct sales or an SDR or BDR assisted motion where it's not a necessity. And then that said, I've also never met a single person who ever said their CRM was in good shape. <laughs> so I think it's like, yeah, it's, it's one of those things where like, you just have to have it. There's not really a better way around it. I do think like CRMs commonly get overextended, both for like for what you're what you're trying to do with them. You know, the amount of people who are trying to run turn their CRM into a database basically and, and put, pump in a bunch of like marketing touch points into the CRM as opposed to like using an actual database to do that sort of thing. So I think you get to a, a point where things are overextended, and that usually, from my experience, comes when a company is earlier in their growth cycle where. You know, that's getting a, a HubSpot or a Salesforce stood up uh, when you have, you know, one or two salespeople probably makes sense 
and then you scale that to like 50 salespeople, and it, that still makes sense. But then all of a sudden, you start adding on other departments like customer success and marketing, and those teams all need things to happen with the customer data. And because you don't have like a customer data platform or, or a data warehouse, you basically start just stuffing more data into your CRM over and over again. And so it, I think that's like comes back to using the right tool for the job. Mm -hmm. And then also making sure that you undo some of the work that you do in Salesforce and, and, or HubSpot, you know, whatever your CRM. Because I think your CRM ch needs change a lot when you have 50, 50 salespeople compared to when you have 500 salespeople. And a lot of times your processes were built around the 50 salespeople. So it's like, I think it's just doing the due diligence to keep that stuff clean is the best you can do. And, and also you know, remembering that it's never going to be perfect and everybody's always going to gripe about it. <laughs> yep, that is so true. I mean, I cannot think of one person that I've ever talked to that said, yeah, our CRM data is perfect. Our CRM's in great shape. We're all super happy with it. <laughs> yep. That just doesn't happen. But it's a really good point about you know not extending what you're trying to do in your CRM and to your other point as well, you know, potentially undoing some of the work that you've done in there. I'm sure that's not necessarily work that anybody wants to do or wants to think about, but it's a really good point that you mentioned, you know, you might've implemented these processes for 50 sales reps, but it's going to be completely different when you have 500 people in there across multiple departments. And if you keep just putting kind of band-aids on top of each other, eventually it's going to break. So kind of doing those incremental changes, painful as they may be, is probably the best approach. Yeah, yeah that and I think like even things as simple as Every CRM I've ever looked at, you could go in and like you're looking at fields on an object trying to like build a report that you're looking at like on the lead object and you're like, why is there still something from like our three marketing automation platforms ago? It's <laughs> just like feel like cruft, just old stuff that doesn't do anything anymore. So I think just like keep, keeping like it's a slippery slope just to add, 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 add and not kind of to take, take things away. So mm -hmm. I had a a chief information officer that I worked with at Sprinkler, uh, who, who's a great guy. And he, he made a deal with us that every time we asked for a new field, we had to get rid of two other fields. So, you know, this is a pretty big company with, with a couple thousand employees. And so that usually I was like, oh, no problem. Here's like an integration we haven't used in four years. And we'll just quietly pick off two fields from that integration stack uh, as we go. <laughs> um, that was... That was kind of a, a, a rule that, you know, especially at the beginning when you have a bunch of cruft makes sense. Obviously, once you get to a, a clean spot, maybe that's not as logical. But it, I always laughed whenever he made that deal with us. <laughs> that's great, though, because, I mean, it forces you to take a look at it. And if you didn't have that deal in place, you might have just had those five-year-old integration fields that you're never using anymore. Might have just sat in there and stacked up. So I love that deal. I'm sure yeah. some of our listeners will probably take that to their companies and <laughs> try to apply it. <laughs> cool. Well, getting a little bit more personal, would be curious to hear, you know, your individual specific thoughts around the three most important uh, MarTech or RevTech types of software that you personally can't live without. Yeah. So I think uh, like CRM kind of has to be number one there. Like you can make CRM do a lot of things, but there's not a lot of other tools you can make be <laughs> that, that record of opportunities, deals, and that, people. Uh, that necessary evil. Yeah, necessary <laughs> evil. So, like, I have to, because it's necessary, I have to put it at the top of the list. So, 
I think yeah, that's number one. And then I probably put marketing automation platform as number two. I think that it's it's kind of funny how much of like an overlap between an automation platform and a CRM are. It's just like we made marketing automation platform because CRMs didn't do what marketers needed them to do. Like, and, and then you you look at like some of the smaller solutions and they're like even HubSpot to this point. Are, like the automation platform and the CRM are kind of one in the same. There's just a couple other features um, right. as opposed to, you know, using something like Marketo and Salesforce where those are very two different, two, two very different pieces of software that work together fairly well, but they're definitely like a different architecture. So I think marketing automation platform is probably the third. After that, I think you're, you know, I'll leave out like your website stack, meaning like content management and all of that, because let's assume that's the cost of doing business. Everybody has one. Um, I don't, right. I find that all CMSs kind of suck. Uh, there's like a tier <laughs> of better ones, but they all kind of suck, you know? So yeah. let's assume you're on one of those top five options. You're, the difference between number one and number five probably isn't that big. Um, right. So from there, I think it's, I'd say like your, your web personalization and testing stack mm -hmm. is super important. And part of that is going to get into the data that you have to personalize off of. And so I, I'd maybe call that your, your web experience stack, uh, which is, you know, a test, a testing platform, which may or may not have personalization in it. So the web personalization stack, which is going to be. I think your your first party data collection as well as joining third party data sources into a tool such as the AB Possessing platform or a personalization platform and to like let's even call like your website chat. Like basically everything that you're gonna do on your website to try to get people to interact and convert. Making sure that is robust and you're able to take your CRM data and surface that up to like the user session. So you can say, Oh, you haven't opened up like, you know. Harry comes to our website, he has a open opportunity. And then we say, you know, check out the Forrester TDI report. Like that's a, that's a pretty common B2B play uh, versus, right. you know, somebody who's a customer and then you say, hey, look, and then they come to the homepage and you show them, here's our uh, new product in it, uh, release, which is an upsell to try to, you know, create additional revenue. So being able to get that, all that data full cycle out of your CRM, plus all the behavioral data plus third-party data, you know, if you're doing IP de-anonymization and all of that into a place where you can take action on it like right, right away. And so right away, meaning like on the first page, you somebody comes to the home homepage, you know what industry they're in and therefore you can change your like homepage hero just to show logos that uh, match that industry. So that kind of whole stack is a pain in the ass to build, but it's one of those things that <laughs> once you get it there, you can start doing really cool, really, really cool things. Uh, and that stack, like, it t tends to be made up of a few tools between like a first party data tool, like a segment, and then like a testing tool, whether that's optimized, optimizely mutiny, things like that, that are going to be able to do personalization on the web experience. And then like a chat tool, which feels like there's a bazillion chat tools these days. You know, I think Drift really set, like created a market there, but then uh, it turns out it, it was able e fairly easy for a lot of other competitors to go build a chat tool. So now every automation platform has a chat tool, ABM platforms all have chat tools, and then there's probably 50 standalone chat tools. But making sure one of those can integrate with your like customer data platform, your CRM, and your testing tool, making sure all that works together. So I, I'd say that's like your, the third bucket there of like the three areas of technology that matter the most. Interesting. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Um, and I think something important that you're touching on is, 
you know, even beyond just kind of filling those three buckets, you know, that's kind of step one, but then figuring out what actual technology to use, it sounds like for you, it has to be pretty table stakes that the data is talking to each other and that all of your tech stack integrates well with each other. Because, you know, what you're saying, you know, across these channels that we're running programs on, you know, the data has to all be aligned and it has to be talking to each other so we can be as effective as possible in what we're serving up to our accounts and prospects. Yeah, I think that's right. And then also like one of the problems that I, I see is that a lot of times you got you have overlapping or conflicting data, right? You potentially have different data in your automation platform than you have in your CRM that you're then that you're getting from a enrichment provider, for example. And so I think it's like making sense of all of that and a kind of a hierarchy of which one of those things becomes the canonical. Uh, so like if we have company name self-reported in a form versus company name in the CRM versus company name in the enrichment tool, which one do we use? Because like, you know, one <laughs> might have LLC in it, one doesn't, or, you know, one was their old name before the rebrand. So um making sure that all the data tools talk to each other, but you also are able, once they can talk to each other, you're going to probably find out that a bunch of the data doesn't match. And so right. making the systems to make sure that all the data gets updated in all the places, as opposed to just like this tool is collecting, that tool is collecting, that tool is collecting, um, mm -hmm. and making sure you don't have over, unnecessary overlap there. Although like I've kind of come to the point that every like every marketing technology provider is trying to ex create more products. And so by definition, like every every single tool product, it had kind of have overlap with some another provider in your stack. You know, HubSpot can also do a CRM, even if you don't use their CRM and you just use an automation platform. Salesforce can also do automation. Your ABM platform can do IP and chat. And then like, you know, your chat vendor might be able to do chat and support. Like there's just all sorts of like weird Venn diagrams across the stack <laughs> these days. Yeah, it's so true. And I imagine that's a pretty tough exercise as a marketing leader to draw out that Venn diagram and see where you have overlap or where you don't and just trying to make sure that everything plays nicely together. Um, but on that note, you know, technologies can do so much nowadays. I feel like sometimes companies will bring in a technology and they'll expect that to just, you know, magically solve a million problems and it'll be that kind of silver bullet. But as we all know, you know, that's not always the case. And to the point we talked about earlier, you know, it's easy to start overextending on tools and try to, you know, ask it to do things that it's not designed to do. So I'd be curious to hear a little bit more of your thoughts around that, just more specifically, like what are some of the false expectations that you've come across that businesses can make out of, um, you know, what they can get out of their technology and how can you set, you know, best set realistic expectations when you're bringing in a new technology and setting up that tech stack? Yeah, I think the single biggest thing I've learned here is like every vendor will oversell how easy their tool is and that the software does all the work, but it's making sure that you match team resources with the software that you're, that you're bringing in. So, you know, if you want to bring in an ABM platform, you should probably have an ABM manager who's going to manage that platform and make sure you're getting the full success out of it. If you're going to have a marketing automation platform, you should probably make sure you have a marketing ops person who knows that platform kind of like, 
you same, you know, same thing with like a web, the web experience stack that we were talking about. If you're gonna have somebody, if you're gonna have a website personalization platform or a CRO platform, whether there's one and the same or, or two different platforms, like making sure that you have somebody who's like focused on that full time. And so I, I think that's the biggest constraint with SaaS growth, like you know, SaaS teams uh, and growth teams within SaaS organizations. To me, it is always people. Like, you know, you can buy a couple hundred thousand dollar pieces of software, but if you don't have the teams to manage them, you're you're not gonna get you're not gonna get your ROI out of those. And so I think there's both like that. You need a team to be the admin and make sure that the programs are going forward. But then you also need to think about like let's call it the indirect pieces of the team that are gonna need to support that. So. Indirect, for example, might be if you're going to do bring on an ABM platform and you want to do account-based display, you're going to need more designers and more copywriters because these are like additional ads that are probably going to be more granular. And so, so that's going to create just a bunch of work for a creative team that you potentially weren't planning. You know, you're thinking like, oh, I'll buy an ABM platform now. I'm doing my ABM. Great. Right. So it's just making sure you have the resources for them all. And typically, I find if you have the resources and dedicate enough time to these platforms, you can usually get your your money's worth out of them. But you know, just be careful of that, like to not uh, buy tools and drop it on your team, or you know, let you know maybe somebody on your team's excited about a tool, and just you know, pressure test of like, okay, if you're if we say yes to buying this tool, how much time do you have to put forward to it? How much time do you need from other teams to be able to go execute these programs? Yeah, that's a really good point. <laughs> really, really like that perspective. And I think we see that a lot. And I'm sure, you know, all technologies companies do, but that can be, you know, the case a lot of the time where it's like, all right, we bought an ABM technology, now we're doing ABM. But of course, you're not going to see the ROI around it if you don't have the right people in place to manage it. You don't have the strategy going into it to make the best use out of the tool. Because, you know, at the end of the day, I think a common theme that we keep coming back to is technologies are only as important, can only be as successful as the strategy and people that you have around to support it. And I think that's kind of the bottom line here. Yep. Yeah. I think that's a, a good way to sum it up. And so, you know, it's be careful when whenever a vendor pitches you like, oh, this software does everything. It's hands off. The AI does it. You know, you just <laughs> keep in mind, like, if people aren't willing to say like, here's, you know, here's the, the, the people headcount and, and uh, effort that's going to need be needed to make this successful. Um, be cautious. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, coming at it from like the sales side a little bit, I think that's a good way as a sales rep even to build up trust. Because as you said, you know, I'm sure I'm sure you get pitched all the time, and I'm sure when somebody says something like that, like "Oh, super easy implementation, integrates with everything, going to be totally hands off, it's all AI," you probably just shut off and you're like, "Okay, this person's lying. This is not true." So if you had a rep who set those clear expectations, I'm sure that would build trust and that's going to, of course, then set you up for success even better when it comes to actual implementation as well. So just thinking about it a little bit from the sales side on that. Yeah, no, to totally confirm kind of your, your thought there is like I've had, I've been head to head with like, you know, enterprise level vendors where like feature parity is pretty much there. Both tools can do what we want, but I right. uh, ended up choosing the team that had, could show us, show us the implementation plan ahead of time with like detail of like, there's how long this takes or who needs to be involved. Here's the ticket that you need to write for your, you know, Salesforce admin team, stuff like that. 
where it gives you a lot more confidence that like, okay, the one, they're not overselling, but two, that implementation is going to help us get up to get time to or like reduce that time to value to the smallest amount of time possible. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yep. It's a really good point. Certainly something that I will take to heart. <laughs> I'm sure our listeners will as well. So thank you for the advice on that. But I do want to go back to the point that we were talking about earlier is, you know, when you're thinking about bringing in technologies, just making sure that you have the right people to align with it, the right people to manage it. And just thinking about, you know, building out your marketing team. And I know you have a lot of experience doing that. So would love to hear your perspective and advice around what it takes to build out and grow a successful marketing team and the types of people that you typically look to bring in. Yeah, that's a that's a good question. And I think like org structure wise, I don't have any like secrets that are outside or like team structure wise, like which teams you have, you know, like you need a team for channels. So you need somebody to be owning organic search, somebody owning email, somebody owning paid search, somebody owning paid social, you know, and some of those areas can like be combined depending on the stage of your growth. I'm really big on having a marketing ops team early uh, to make, to the point of making all this technology work. Marketing ops teams are, can provide extreme leverage of saving the other team's time and getting that also getting them better data to be able to like just be more effective so you know i think there's channels teams there's ops marketing ops teams and then kind of your web slash digital experience slash growth teams um i think those are usually a different skill set like you need to really be able to talk developer um uh, that like it's a like that weird combination between user experience data and talking engineers and being a product manager. So, you know, that kind of web group would be, or digital experience group would be kind of the third one. And then from there, depending on your business, you know, like field marketing might make sense if you're in the enterprise events might field marketing and or events. Sometimes those are in one team, which, you know, at that point, you're really thinking of like in-person style or one to like, face-to-face conversation. And then the last one would be on the, you know, on the growth side specifically is uh, campaigns or integrated marketing. So somebody that's basically going to stitch together a message across all of, all of those uh, parts of the growth organization. So um, that, that's kind of like the, the key functions I think of in like growth and demand gen side of the house. Now, like on the other side of the house, obviously, Things like product marketing, things like your creative and brand teams are super important. And then depending on your your company organization, sometimes you'll have a centralized data data team that's going to work across all of the teams in the company. And then sometimes you have dispersed data teams where like potentially your, your marketing operations team is doing all the analytics and reporting just for marketing or as opposed to like a centralized data team that does that supports the whole company. So I think like those are like the main functions that I think of in a marketing team, you know, both the subset of growth plus those additional like product marketing, brand marketing functions. I think what, and and that's pretty common. Like, I, I don't think I'm like, I've never really reinvented the wheel there. I think what matters the most is deciding where, where metrics own are owned across those teams and getting the right leaders that can own those. And so, um, like one thing I always think about when I'm, when I'm trying to decide what level I need to hire a team leader at is do I need a person who can 
go execute a plan across departments? Or am I looking for a person that you can point to a number and say, I need that to go up? And then they go figure out what the plan is and go execute across departments. And so understanding you know, where, which part of those areas you need the most leverage and understanding what level to bring in the right team leader. That's one of the hardest things that I found in planning. Because a lot of times you'll plan, you're like, you'll write this on paper and you'll be like, all right, so for my channel's leader, maybe we call that a digital marketing director or something like that. That person, I just need to say like, what's our inbound opportunity volume look like this month compared to last month compared to, the, to next month? And I need it to go up, you know, 5% month over month forever. And so, you know, being a person that's one, able to make those forecasts, able to work cross-functionally with creative teams, uh, with product marketing teams, with marketing operation teams, with SDR teams that you know may or may not sit in the marketing org. Being able to decide, like, is that somebody that is a maintainer or is that somebody who's like more of a general manager? So, you know, to that question of like, is this person going to go execute my plan or is this person going to go build their own plan, their own forecast that I can just be like, yep, cool. looks, looks good. I don't like, this is your thing. This is your show. I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to touch it. And so in like a growth organization, you're typically not going to have enough like headcount to hire that like a player at every single, at every single one of those team leads. And so the hard part is making the decision of like, which areas do we need are the best people in? And so which areas do I need a director or senior director in compared to like a manager, for example? And that's the, that's the, like the hardest part. And, it, and I think it's a little different for every team based on where you are and, and what your business model is like. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, and really appreciate that perspective and, you know, having worked with you and teams that you've built, I can certainly say that you've done an amazing job of building out, uh, really successful teams, but something that you touched on that definitely really resonated with me is, you know, finding, that a player where you can say, you know, I need this number to go up or, you know, I need you to be able to figure out how to do this. And then you can just trust them to then go figure out their own way and they're able to accomplish it. Cause I imagine, you know, especially probably earlier in your career, when you just start building out teams, it's probably hard to kind of make that shift of, you know, thinking that, you know, what's best and wanting to do it your way versus trusting people to go out and do it their way. And I assume that's that's gotta be pretty hard, but such a integral part of being a successful leader is finding those people and setting them up for success. Yeah, I agree. And it's I think it's really where I spent most of the time in, when I interview is most of the time of like, I think it's developing the trust that they're gonna, that I like their thought process for solving a problem and therefore I can trust them to solve future problems. So, you know, I, I spend a lot of time in the interview process thinking like, okay, this is the challenge that we're up against. How would you go about solving it? So like that usually, they almost never get to the answer that, you, that they probably would, but they don't know your business yet, right? It's, it's a 30 minute interview, but the best people will kind of say like, well, if this, then that, and if this, then that, and it kind of take you through that thought process yeah. decision chain of like, yeah. well, I'd look at this. And if I saw this, I would do A. If I saw that, I would do B. Um, and right. can kind of take you through how they get to a root cause analysis and then how they 
make decisions, position them with the risks and um, opportunities of a decision. Mm -hmm. And that typically, I, I find that like the people who are good at problem solving and can act as owners or as like GMs of their business uh, tend to do better at those type of questions than the, the person who either like just says, I, I do A, like right off the bat without being able right. to explain why. Or actually one of my least favorite answers is like, well, I'd have to look at the data. And I'm like, well, this is a hypothesis. <laughs> that doesn't help yeah. me. That doesn't help me there. They, you know, you're basically just buying yourself more time for answering this question. So exactly, uh, I, I find a lot of it comes out in the interview process. And you don't always get it right. But the, uh, uh, oh, I guess, and the other part to that, uh, to your point was, that becomes even more important to do to hire people that are A players in the areas where you traditionally or historically don't have a lot of expertise. So like, mm -hmm. for example, it's easier for me to hire somebody in demand generation because that's like my background. It's a lot harder for me to hire somebody in product marketing. And so like mm -hmm. when I, I recently hired an, an amazing product marketing leader where I was able to ask a bunch of questions where like, I didn't even know the answer to it. So there, there was no right or wrong. What, all I was looking for is like, how do you solve this problem? And can I learn something from you in the process? Right. So as your like scope begins to grow, you'll eventually start owning areas of the marketing team that you're not your skill set or you're not your strong suit. Mm -hmm. uh, and being able to like interview for things that you don't know the answer to uh, becomes like a, a skill that you're always working on. <laughs> right. And that's always the main goal, right? Is to hire people smarter than yourself, I think is what everybody says. And it sounds like that's what you do as well. And I mean, it's really, it's really interesting to hear your thoughts on that interview process where it's really just about hearing that person's kind of thought process and the way that they analyze problems, not even necessarily thinking about, you know, is this answer that they come to right or wrong, but just feeling confident that they could take a problem and you know, have a good process of assessing it and coming to a good conclusion. So yeah, really interesting to hear your thoughts on it. Appreciate the perspective. Great. So I think that wraps up the main portion of our questions. Just had a couple last rapid fire ones for you in the last minute or two here. I uh, would be curious to hear, are there any books, blogs, newsletters, websites, or videos that you would recommend our listeners check out after the episode? Yeah. Um, so I think like on the podcast side, I've been using uh, NPR's How I Built This as kind of like my secret uh, ideas for non-traditional marketing growth loops. So a lot of times, you, you know, it's a founder talking about how they built a company. And, you know, while it's not focused on marketing, a lot of early success in founding like a high growth company, like whether that's like Coinbase or, you know, any other B2C company, there's usually some point where they got really scrappy about acquiring customers that weren't just run more ads on Facebook. And so being able to find like growth loops that are maybe non-traditional, I find that a really good source that a lot of people don't think about. Um, and also just find it inspiring to listen to founders like going from nothing to, some, to creating something worth uh, value. On the book side, I, uh, I think I spend a lot of time reading leadership books these days. And so a couple that, uh, two that I've read in the last maybe three years or so that I, I, I like a lot are uh, Multipliers. Um, and so that's a, a book that's really good about getting, uh, getting more out of your team and making sure that you're setting your team up for success and you're kind of um, creating space for your teams to be a multiplying effect on your business. 
And then the other one is extreme ownership. That one can be a little intense. It's like an army background. Uh, but my favorite part of that is, you know, as the, as the leader of the team, success and failure begins and ends with you. And that um, being able to own the outcome, even if you didn't create the plan for it, but your team did, um, becomes really, really key. So I think those are probably two of my favorite books that I've read in the last, let's call it like three years or so that are leadership focused. Nice. I love it. Thanks for the recommendations. Definitely. I've listened to a couple of uh, how I built this and definitely concur. Really great stories there. I need to check out some more episodes and definitely appreciate the book recommendations as well. I've, I've, I think I've heard of both of those, but I haven't read them yet. So definitely we'll put them on the list. And last question for you here. If you could share the names of a few people in B2B tech who lead go-to-market or data teams um, that you would recommend we bring on the show, would love your recommendations. Yeah, a couple of people that I've worked with that are just, you know, the type of people that I worked for that you're like, wow, you're you're better than me at this and I'm learning so much from you at it. So Brian Olshock, uh, kind of pipeline generation at Service Titan, he was kind of my manager there. Man, that guy can build systems to scale really quickly. And then Rick Galan, uh, where he's the head of marketing at, at Divi, who got acquired by Build.com. Once again, kind of on, a, on a, a different side of what he's really good at. Like he's really good at kind of the technology system side where like Brian's really good at the people systems and program side. So both of those people are, are people that I've learned a bunch from in my career. Great. Well, we'll definitely have to reach out to them. Hopefully some episodes in the future with their name on it. There we go. Great. Well, thanks for taking the time today, Jared. Really enjoyed having you on the podcast. Really enjoyed our conversation. So thank you so much again for being a part of the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a good time. Of course. Thanks, Jared. Today's episode is made possible by Demandbase. Demandbase is smarter GTM for B2B brands to help marketing and sales teams spot the juiciest opportunities earlier and progress them faster. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Sunnyside Up. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us and subscribe to our show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you consume podcasts. You can also find us on YouTube and Demand Based TV.